Tēnā koutou no mai, hi to mai. Welcome to Q&A. I'm Jack Tame. It is our final show of the year, and this morning we're speaking with some of the key players from 2021. As Auckland's lockdown finally ends, Chris Hipkins on the promise and the pitfalls of the new traffic light system. Then, I'm not sure if you heard, but National has a new leadership team. In this interview, though, Christopher Luxon and I have a deeper discussion about New Zealand's future, his values, and the investments we should be making for a more productive economy. Why shouldn't they just follow your lead? That's my question. Yeah, well, no, I mean, that's the reality of it. As I look at my investments, they go across a series of asset classes, you know, and some of it's in property, some of it's in other things. And contact tracing, health line testing. Unfortunately, coronaviruses don't take holidays. I've got, I've got a four-year-old and a two-year-old and I'd love to be home at, on Christmas Day with, with them. Um, but this is also important work that needs doing. We'll have that interview for you shortly. But 48 hours into life under the traffic light framework, Aucklanders have flocked to cafes and restaurants, dining in for the first time in more than three months. But there are reports about inconsistent scanning of vaccine passes, confusion over some of the rules, and 70,000 people have had to be issued temporary exemptions because they couldn't access their vaccine passes in time. COVID-19 Response Minister Chris Hipkins is with us this morning for the final time in 2021. Kia ora and thanks once again for your time. What's your assessment for how the traffic light system is working? Oh, look, as with any new system, there have been a few bumps in the road, but on the main, it's rolled out very smoothly, I think. Uh, people are getting used to showing their vaccine passes when they're heading out and about, uh, and I think we're all getting used to uh, you know, different ways of, of doing things. Under the criteria listed in the, vaccine, uh, in the traffic light framework, shouldn't Auckland be at level orange? Well, at the moment, Auckland is still the epicentre of our current outbreak, and there are thousands of cases in Auckland, and we're still getting over 100 cases a day on most days at the moment showing up in Auckland. So it is still the, the area of greatest concern for us, and we do want to allow Aucklanders to move. We've indicated that we'll be relaxing that boundary uh, and le only less than two weeks to go now uh, before people will be able to travel much more freely in and out of Auckland. So you know, opening up, giving this extra freedom, having people doing a a lot more of their normal day-to-day -day activities does increase the risk and so we need to see what that does to our daily case numbers, what that does to our overall risk profile there in Auckland. At what point will you be prepared to make that assessment? Well, one of the things that we've learned from countries uh, around the world who have opened up too quickly is that they often end up then having to go back and reimpose restrictions, and we don't want to do that. So we want to ease restrictions progressively uh, in a way that we can sustain so that we don't have to lurch backwards and forwards and so that people uh, can see that we're you know, heading in, in, in a single direction, which is towards more day-to-day -day life as normal. Mm. Uh, as I mentioned, this is our final interview for 2021, so I want to look back a little bit so we can look forward. Polls show a vast majority of New Zealanders believe our overall COVID-19 response has been excellent. Our deaths per capita are among the lowest in the world, but having ministers who can acknowledge the totality of the response, the successes, but also the, the shortcomings, is vital. So I wanted to ask you about the vaccine passes. What does it say about the preparations for our vaccine pass system that 70,000 Kiwis have had to be issued exemptions? 
Well, if we break those numbers down, so as of this morning, I think there were somewhere around about between 90 to 100,000 uh, issues in the queue to be dealt with. More than half of those are people who either have um, been vaccinated overseas and are attempting to get their vaccines recognised in New Zealand, or they're people where there have been name-related issues in the way their records are in the system. So uh, people, for example, if they gave a slightly different variant of their name when they got their second dose compared to when they got their first dose, the system might not match those up well to automatically generate them their pass. Those issues are easily resolved, but they do require talking to an actual person to work through that and to resolve that. Uh, the average wait time on the uh, system now on the 0800 number is about five minutes, so if you're ringing up to get one of those issues resolved, you'll be waiting uh, about five minutes to get your call answered. I know five minutes feels like a long time, but actually that's not, not, not too bad. Certainly well down mm. on some of the higher uh, wait times that we were seeing earlier on. Doesn't it undermine the, the system if we are giving exemptions automatically to as many as 90,000 people? And, and couldn't those issues have been sorted if we had had vaccine passes in production or available much earlier in our response? Well, first of all, the exemptions are only temporary and they do expire very quickly. Uh, in terms of the, the vaccine passes and the issuing of the vaccine passes, you know, we've issued 3.6 million vaccine passes in, in only a couple of weeks. I think that system has gone remarkably smoothly. Um, uh, there's been a lot of work on the, the data and the IT systems around mm. vaccination. And a lot of that has been, uh, you know, done under a lot of pressure, um, trying to bring systems up mm. and, and into operation that normally you would take a lot longer to bring into operation. They've been done quickly, as quickly as we can. So, yep, um, I'm, overall I'm satisfied with the way that system has gone. Uh, but, of course, you know, with more time, I'm sure that there are things that we could have done better. The Roach report this week strongly criticised some elements of the preparations for Delta. With the benefit of hindsight, do you accept that New Zealand was not as prepared as it could have been for the Delta outbreak? Um, look, undoubtedly, there are always going to be things when you're looking back, there are always going to be things that you look at and you think, gosh, you know, um, would have done that slightly differently. Um, so, yes, of course, I accept uh, many of the findings in Brian Roche's report. It's one of the reasons why, um, you know, I've commissioned him regularly to do these reviews because uh, we do have to keep learning and we do have to keep identifying ways to do things better into the future. Nothing, you know, when we started this uh, 20 months ago, there was no rule book, and so we've had to make mm. up the rule book as we've been going along and undoubtedly um, it's highlighted that there are some things that we could have done better and so the purpose of these reviews is to make sure that we learn the lessons as quickly as we can. I want to ask you about what turned out to be perhaps the critical decision in New Zealand's Delta response and history will record that Auckland's move to level four to level uh, from level four to level three was critical. We had community cases at the time and of course we saw a spike in case numbers. But on the day that the government announced that move from level four to level three, Jacinda Ardern and Dr Ashley Bloomfield justified the move because of vaccination rates. Here's what they had to say. The difference this time is it's level three with high and increasing rates of vaccination. Mm. And so it gives us further opportunity to get those vaccination rates up even higher. The vaccination rate element is important. We haven't had that tool in behind us supporting our alert level restrictions before. We do now.
Now, what they didn't mention in that press conference is that Māori vaccination rates were 26 percentage points behind those of the general population when they made that decision. Documents released to One News this week under the Official Information Act show Māori vaccination rates were not considered by Cabinet in making that move. Of course, Māori infection rates have spiked in the months since. Upon reflection, was that a mistake? I think Māori vaccination has been one of the big challenges that we faced in the vaccine rollout, um, making sure that we're getting our Māori communities coming forward to be vaccinated, um, making sure that we're combating the misinformation that they have been the subject uh, subjected to. Mm. That has been one of the huge challenges that we faced here. So um, in terms of the, the shift from alert level four down to alert level three, though, I think if you took the totality of that press conference, you'd find that there are a whole lot of other reasons as well. It wasn't just vaccination. Um, and I I think we were quite open about that. It's, it's always a balance of factors when you make mm. these decisions. And one of the key ones in that particular uh, instance was that uh, by the time we did that, the outbreak had made its way into a part of the community that uh, was not really following the alert level system at all. Mm. So whether we were at alert level four or alert level three or alert level two, uh, at that point, the, it wasn't, uh, the alert levels weren't stopping the spread amongst the community that it had made its way into because they were continuing to go about their lives as normal, um, regardless of what alert level we were at. So, so uh, it would just seem remarkable to some people that Māori vaccination rates weren't considered for a decision of that magnitude. So, so just to be 100% clear, was it a mistake for Cabinet not to consider Māori vaccination rates in making that decision? Well, whether they're mentioned in the Cabinet paper or not, I can give you an absolute reassurance they were discussed. I mean, we get on a daily basis mm. an update of breakdown of vaccination statistics, and that, that update is provided to a number of ministers every day, and that includes Māori, Pacific, uh, other New Zealanders by region, mm. by age. Uh, you know, it gives, us, it gives us a very detailed breakdown. So we had that information when we made that decision. Right, so, OK, so you did have the information, and you, you still decided to move Auckland from Level 4 to Level 3. So when you moved Māori with 13% of all-time Delta cases in New Zealand, now they are 45% of all-time Delta cases in New Zealand. Do you accept that that decision disproportionately endangered Māori? Um, no, I don't. As I've indicated before, one of the things that we had to weigh up there was that the particular segment of the community uh, that this outbreak was starting to affect the most was a segment of the community that was not observing alert level four restrictions anyway. Um, and unfortunately, um, there are more Māori disproportionately in that uh, particular part of the community. Mm. And so, uh, you know, it's, it, as I said, when we make these decisions, it's always a balance of different factors um, that we're weighing up. And the higher the rate of vaccination amongst the whole population, the greater the protection for those who aren't vaccinated. So, of course, you know, all of those things come into, mm. into play. Let's talk about the future of the response. What would happen if the Omicron variant was discovered in the community in New Zealand today? Well, there's still a lot that we don't know about the new variant, and um, you know we're, we're we're getting new public health advice on a on a near daily basis about that. So the latest update I got was yesterday morning. Um, we still haven't seen what that does in terms of the transmissibility uh, or the severity of illness, mm. um, and we'll know more about that in the next few weeks. So it's still at this point, you know, I'm confident that if we do see that it arrive on New Zealand's shores, we'll pick that up because of the surveillance and because of the mm. MIQ that we've got. 
operating at the border. Um, and so, you know, we'll, we'll cross that bridge as we as we get to it. Um, but at the moment, the risk to New Zealand is still very low. But you, you must have a plan, though, right? I, I mean, obviously, you want to avoid it being in the community at all costs, and, and you are, you know, you are screening everyone who comes through MIQ and, and all of that. But what would happen if it was discovered in the community today? Would you, would you be forced to make a decision about lockdowns? Well, the, the issue is we don't know um, enough yet about this variant. So, <clears throat> and the science is, mm. is still mixed. Um, some of the reports out of South Africa suggest, for example, that while it might be more transmissible, it may not uh, make people as sick uh, as, say, Delta. So, so now, what would you do if it was today, this is something that does With the information you have available, I mean, I, I appreciate there's so much you don't know about the variant, but would you err on the side of caution and put New Zealand back into lockdown if that's what it took, if it was discovered today? Well, it, it, it's, it hasn't made its way to New Zealand at all yet, and we, we know that because of all of the testing that we do around but it's our not, border. But it's not up to us, so, though, is um, it? That is, yeah. <clears throat> Look, it, it, it hasn't arrived in New Zealand, uh, and so and we know that because we we test everybody mm. coming across the border, and we do genome sequencing for every case that comes across the border, and so we don't have it here in New Zealand. So that is, to, to a large extent, it's, it's a hypothetical question that you're asking me. Um, and like I said, we don't know yet mm. um, what Omicron is going to do for the overall COVID-19 uh, response, both here in New Zealand and around the globe. It is a hypothetical, but one that that I'm, that I'm sure you and your colleagues are considering. Let me ask. Ask this then: Is there any future scenario in which the traffic light system would be paused and New Zealand would go back into using an alert level system to manage the pandemic? Well, look, we've always been pretty clear that we've got the alert level system there uh, at the side, ready in the event that we needed to mm. use that. So, if we did get a, a variant of the um, of the virus that that the vaccine didn't work on um, and that made its way through the vaccine if we were you know, running the risk of being right back at square one, then of course we've got those tools that we used earlier on. Um, those are not likely scenarios. They're possible scenarios, but, but probably not likely scenarios. But of course we have, we have plans for those in the event that we need to do that. Finally, Minister, how has this year affected you personally? Are you exhausted? Um, look, it's been a long year. Um, I do take a lot of energy from New Zealanders and from New Zealanders' response. I acknowledge that it's been a really tough year. If we thought mm. 2020 was tough, 2021 has been just as tough, if not tougher, I think, for some. Um, and so I acknowledge how hard that's been for people. I think about the people who lie in bed at night wonder, you know, wondering how they're going to pay their staff, and I am um, very, very aware of those. But I also take a lot of energy from the people who are saying, look, you know, we know that this is difficult and uh, we, we just need to get on with it and we are going to you know, continue to, to do what we can do uh, in, a, in a really challenging and unprecedented set of circumstances. So uh, I think New Zealanders goodwill towards the COVID-19 response has been so integral to our success as a country uh, and if we're going to continue to be successful we're going to need to continue to maintain that. Well thank you once again for suiting up for us on a Sunday morning. We really appreciate the time you have given us this year and I hope you can get some sort of a break over summer. That is the COVID-19 response minister, Chris Hipkins. After the break, we would call it a world exclusive, if not for the 300 interviews he's already done this week. But this interview is different. We go in depth with Christopher Luxon on some of the critical issues that will define New Zealand's future. Hoki mai we welcome back to Q&A. 
just 409 days. That's how long Christopher Luxon was an MP before becoming leader of the National Party. Now, we know he's done a few media spots this week, but we wanted to give you a slightly different interview on Q&A to get a better sense of what New Zealand would look like under a Prime Minister, Christopher Luxon. He and I sat down yesterday afternoon and I began by asking him about the COVID-19 response. Well, look, I think uh, fundamentally the traffic light system, I think, is proving to be incredibly confusing for people, particularly here in Auckland. Uh, you know, the way, the way it's been defined as a red system is when we've got an overwhelmed healthcare system, orange, you know, not as overwhelmed, green sort of free. And as you look at it today, it's very hard to justify exactly sort of why Auckland is in red, the South Island's in orange. And so I think there's some real confusion about that. But fundamentally for us, you know, it's about making sure that we've got some good defences in place, you know, so we're actually de-risking you know, COVID as we go forward. And so things like making sure we do have MIQ capacity, but actually using it in the right way, uh, which I don't think we are at the moment, um, making sure that we've got treatments all organised, we've got good progress on boosters. We've still been talking about antigen testing, rapid testing, saliva testing for a long period of time. Uh, and those things actually need to happen. You know, ICU beds, you know, we have the second lowest level of ICU beds per capita in the, in the OECD. We've made no real progress on that in 18 months. And, and I guess my challenge is because I don't want to be just, you know, criticising the government. You know, the reality is we had a very, very good program in 2020. I thought the government handled things very, very well. But we sort of have wasted the opportunity to get things organised and actually delivered so that we can de-risk it uh, as we go forward. I suppose that, that capacity in the healthcare system is central to why Auckland might be in red at this stage. We are you know, 48 hours into the traffic light system. Wouldn't the prudent thing to be just to wait a few more days to see how it's affecting case numbers? Yeah, but I guess the way it's been set up, you know, it's been, if you look at the criteria for RED, it says to us very clearly that we have an overwhelmed healthcare system. Yet on the other hand, the Prime Minister will say, no, it's fine, and we've got very high levels of vaccination. We are now probably one of the more vaccinated cities on planet Earth. And so the question is, you know, what's the logic behind it all? I think that's what people are reacting to. Right. Um, but isn't the logic just waiting a couple of weeks to see how losing the lockdown restrictions affects case numbers? Well, I think that's the challenge though, that hasn't been communicated that way. We were, we were introduced with a new system after two previous systems. The criteria for each of those things was laid up very clearly. Uh, and then when you put the, the city or the town in through that lens, you sort of end up going, why, why have we got here? And I think, you know, so that, that's the sort of central message. You know, I think we need to give credit to the government that actually 2020, the response was very, very good. I think in 2021, the response hasn't been as good because in some ways it was the same playbook applied to a quite a different context. And the bigger issue for me is the implementation, you know, like as a manager or as a business leader, you would be on the phone at four o'clock every Thursday to every you know, CEO of every DHB saying, right, how much more progress have we made on ICU beds this week? You know, Have you hit your target? Are we doubling the capacity as we've seen in other places around the world? So it's, it's you know, I get it. You know, we've got half the country, you know, a third of the country probably that are quite fearful about going forward and opening up. We've got a third of the country, I suspect, that are very you know, excited and want to open up like yesterday. And we've got a third that are sort of no strong view. And so the politics of it are difficult. But I I actually think you know execution, implementation, getting it done hmm. uh, is the way in which we can de-risk it as we go forward. Relative to GDP, what should be our maximum level of sovereign debt responding to the pandemic? Yeah, I'm not really interested in that because I think the issue is you think about the economics. You know, you can have debt and you can have good debt that's actually invested in things and that will drive 
intergenerational. So if you, you were Prime Minister today, how much debt would you be comfortable with responding to the pandemic? Um, I would have less debt than what we have today, but I won't give you a percentage of GDP because I actually don't think that is particularly helpful at this point. What I would say to you is what's going on in our economy at the moment. If you're Grant Robertson, he will talk very strongly about the macroeconomics of you know, GDP, growth, he'll talk about unemployment, all those things. But if you just strip it down where we are, I mean, fundamentally we've got a big increase in government spending, up 40%. Mm. Um, we've got, uh, that's leading to us increasing our debt up to 120 billion almost. Um, and then that's, that's actually the problem with that is that all of that money has to be repaid at some point in time. And that then limits our ability to invest in our infrastructure. And then therefore we can't drive greater productivity. Therefore we don't get higher incomes and we don't get choices. So that's the logic of what we've but got. But you know, as I do, that the, the interest rates are incredibly low globally at the moment. The cost of borrowing has never been cheaper. So if we borrow smartly and then invest in infrastructure, we grow our economy at a speed that outperforms inflation, then... That's exactly right, but it starts with an assumption that the money that you've got coming in or that you've borrowed is going to be spent 100% on that productive and invested in that productive infrastructure. At the moment, we're sort of borrowing money and we're spending it on our daily living, you know? And so if you, a good example to me would be, we spend $1.2 billion having hired 10,000 more bureaucrats in Wellington, and I'd put it to you, we haven't got better outcomes. And so for me, it's about outcomes. It's kind of where we need to get to. What tax changes would you prioritise for the New Zealand you want? Yeah, well, look, there won't, you know, at this point we're not increasing taxes, uh, but I also couldn't come to you and say we're going to lower taxes either at this point. We'd love to do that, but the question is, at the moment, we need to get spending under control. We need to get to a level of debt and get the investment profile right for the infrastructure that we've so got. Do you think that New Zealand's tax settings are suitable at the moment? Um, at this point in time, I would tell you that um, you know, we would love to lower tax. I can tell you that. Everyone, Everyone would. Every politician would. Yeah, yeah. We'd all say it's way too, too high. Um, but the reality at the moment is, for us, it's about making sure we've got no wasteful spending, that we've got debt lower so that we're going to have to repay it back, and then it would be about how we make those investments going. Is the minimum wage too high? Um, no, I think the minimum wage, the challenge I had with the minimum wage is I'm a big fan of increasing minimum wages, but you do it when your economy is growing around the 3% sort of mark or 3 to 4% mark and you can sustain it. Because if you're a small business person in New Zealand at the moment, and I think this is what the government forgets what it's like, these are people who fundamentally had an idea, taken a risk, you know, 30% of the mortgages that they get from banks are actually put into, they borrow against their house to put into their business. They hire people, they make things happen. They fundamentally can't, you know, they now get, they've got increases in minimum wage, they've got five days sick leave, they've got mata, you know, rangi holidays to pay for. All that cost gets shunted across to small business to pay for. Uh, and as a result, it's a big disincentive for them to invest back in their business and actually create new jobs. And I think that's the difference, is the government thinks they create the jobs, whereas the small business people taking a punt on, a, on, a, on, a, on some growth, actually hiring people is what happens. I mean, we have had one of the strongest performing economies in the world throughout the pandemic. Yeah, well, we, we've, I mean, our macroeconomic performance has been very good. We've got some challenges in that economy. You mean every yeah. economist in the country thought we could be staring down the barrel of 10% unemployment? I think, you know, that, 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 that has been, you know, that's a fantastic set of macro features. But what I'd say to you is I actually think we have been looking inward. I think we've become fearful. I think we're playing quite a small game. I've talked to lots of small business people who want to grow and export their businesses, you know, export customers. I spoke to a guy the other day out in East Tamaki and he'd want a customer in Australia, which is exactly what we want him to do. He wanted to 
spend a million dollars and a, a million and a half dollars on new capital, hire three more staff to add to the 16 that he already had. And he said to me, Chris, I don't think I'm going to do it. And I said, why won't you do it? And he said, well, I can't get my product in and out of the ports of New Zealand. The, the ships only arrive 40% of the time on time. I also don't have any real incentive, can't get the skilled worker that I need to work that, that plane because the immigration system's clogged. It's all too hard and I don't know how the government might change something on me that then makes it uncertain as to what's happening in the future. Would you support Auckland's port moving? Well, uh, I haven't thought about that, and I, and I owe you an answer for that. Why not? Um, well, I mean, I, I'd have to say to you long term, I don't think the port makes a lot of sense being in that prime location in Auckland. As to where it goes, uh, that's, I don't have a view on that. Do New Zealanders have equality of opportunity? Um, no. I think the reality is there are five-year-olds that are setting off life in New Zealand by function of where they were born and the neighbourhoods that they live in that actually start well behind the start line. And I think what I want to do is make sure that we build, yes, an economy that's more productive. You know, that means a big investment in education, unleashing the power of business to get ahead and investing in infrastructure. But the other thing we really have to do is actually work with people and support people who have very complex, challenged and messy lives. You know, that is the reality. And we've got to be able to support them. And even if we have to surge the investment and spend the money up front, because we're going to be spending the money supporting them through the length of their lifetime. And I think if we had, we, we know there'll be 100,000 families in New Zealand that have already had interactions with the education system, the justice system, social welfare, um, and are, are doing it tough. Mm. And so why can't we identify them and actually surge the resources into them to actually get them to help them to participate? Are you talking about a English social investment? I am, and I, and I think it's about moving it from the theory to the practice. And you know, when I've looked at that overseas and I think about the work that was, say, done in Compton and Watts with a really enterprising mayor, and you know, Compton's one of the most challenged areas and cities in the US, right? Yeah. And I think about the practical things that you have to do to help that family change the trajectory of where their lives are going. You know, we know from mm. statistics and from data, you know, that you know, the 1,500, I think it's five-year-olds that were in state care, you know, we know what the probability of them being incarcerated is. We know mm. the probability of finishing school, what sort of work. You know, we have to do something about that. Um, but we do it in a targeted and make powerful interventions based off need. What is rich in New Zealand? Well, rich is quite simply the ability that you don't have to work. You know, it's kind of the subtext, you know. I would consider myself a rich person in the economic sense. I think a rich person is also someone who's got a great family life and great relationships um, as part of a community. Uh, and so, you know, that's, that's sort of the reality of it. You've talked about the importance of increasing productivity and of investing in New Zealand businesses. But you, as someone who is well-versed in business, choose to invest in residential property. So why should we do as you say rather than do as you speak? Well, look, I mean, what I'd say about that, and I've noted the criticism over the last week, is that fundamentally, you know, I'm a guy that had a state school education in Christchurch. I went to university, the first in my family to do so. I went into the public private sector. I worked for large commercial organisations, and I was paid incredibly well. And I've subsequently invested, you know, and so there's some... But this is the point. You've chosen to invest in residential property rather than other, more productive means. Yeah, and other assets, though, as well. And so, but the point for me is, you know, the, 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 my pushback to you was fundamentally, you know, why, you know, someone who's successful... It's not, it's not about not success. It's about it's about it's about responding 
rationally to the economic incentives that are in front of you, right? And, and you have done that by yes. investing in residential property because... Yeah. As a component of my investment. As a component, yeah. but, but um, a, a fairly significant component in the eyes of most New Zealanders. So, yeah. so, so why should someone who has money to invest today choose to invest in a New Zealand business or choose to invest in more productive means rather than following your lead? Well, I think that's the issue, right? I mean, you know, we've got massive double-digit growth in housing and it's actually doing a number of things. A, it's causing unaffordability issues, big time, but it is actually incenting people to not actually put it into the, a broader set of asset classes. And so I get that, I understand. Yeah, so, so why it's not sustainable. No, so why, should they, why shouldn't they just follow your lead? Well, that's my question. Yeah, well, no, I mean, th that's the reality of it. You know, as I look at my investments, they go across a series of asset classes, you know, and some of it's in property, some of it's in other things. You still haven't answered my question, though. Why shouldn't they follow your lead? You're, you're the business guy. You've chosen to invest in housing. Why shouldn't they follow the same... Well, well they have been, but the... Rational signals and do the same thing. Yeah, but the thing is, they have been doing that. A lot of New Zealanders have been investing. I'd put it to you, I'd put it to you, you know, You've got, you know, 70% of landlords here in New Zealand, you know, you know, are actually, you know, they own one or two properties. They've done it to augment their retirement plans, um, and you know, that's been a legitimate, you know, that's how New Zealanders have been thinking about property for many, many years. As we go forward, we do need New Zealanders to be more invested in a, in a stock market, more balanced with how they put where they put their capital. Uh, but the incentives have been, you know, very, very good to go for high levels of double. Double-digit growth. How many houses is too many houses for someone to own? Um, I can't answer that. I mean, um, what I'd say to you very simply is that you know the vast majority of landlords mm. are actually providing really good accommodation. Uh, they care deeply about their land, their, their tenants, mm. um, and they're doing the right thing. I think. I thought when the government accused them, everyone of being a property speculator who happened to be a landlord, I can tell you when I spoke to a school principal of primary school whose mum had died, she'd saved some money, put the bit together to go buy a house, that wasn't, she wasn't. But, but I mean, you, you've just told me that New Zealanders don't have a quality of opportunity and you want to do something to address that. Yep. At a time when we have people living in cars, when we have hundreds of thousands of New Zealanders living in poverty, morally, what is the maximum number of houses you think a person should own? Um, I don't have, I don't, I'm not going to get into that because fundamentally... You know, I, is it immoral to own a lot of houses? Um, no, I don't think it is. I, I think you, you, you're going to need people who actually have great, you need great landlords. You know, there's always going to be people who are going to be renting houses. The bigger questions you need to get to is how do we actually solve the housing crisis we have in, here in New Zealand? You know, how do we have a country the size of Great Britain and Japan with less people and we still have more expensive house prices? And so those are the issues you've got to get into. You know, we have... Nothing immoral about someone owning 200 houses at a oh. time when New Zealanders are living in cars. Yeah, well, no, no, but what I'd say to you is this... Yeah, you, we're going to need people to invest in housing. I'm thinking about... We all agree with I, that. I think about people investing, say, in rent-to-build programs, you know, coming to this country. We want to incent people to be able to do that. We'd want, we'd want that to happen. Did you see Jim Bolger on Q&A last week, by any chance? Um, I, I caught a glimpse of it, yeah. And what I think... You, what did you make of his comments, saying that it's time for us to, to reconsider capitalism in well, the modern age. What I'd say age. to you is, you know, I've travelled around the world, I've lived all around the world, I've seen the failings of capital, you know, of, of socialism, I've seen the, you know, I've seen the challenges around capitalism, and I think the bottom line is capitalism has been a very good model for the world. It has lifted several billion people, you know, two billion people, I'd say, out of poverty in the last 20 or 30 years. And so the system actually works. I think the point there is a very fair one, is, you know, you can't leave everything laissez-faire hard 
right to the markets. The markets fail, markets don't work, and you do need interventions. And I think how you get some compassion in capitalism is actually very, very important. And I think that's the sort of stuff I was talking to you before about the social investment model. Um, but yeah, no, look, I, I heard the remarks, but I have to disagree and say I think that, you know, I'd sooner live in a country where there's a, a system built around capitalism than socialism. After the break, the treaty, climate change, and just one question about faith. Kia ora te welcome back. For the second part of my interview with National Leader Christopher Luxon, I began by asking about foreign affairs. What is New Zealand's most important international relationship? Um, well, the bottom line for New Zealand, if you step it out back, is that we actually have to work with everybody. You know, we are five million people. No, don't no, 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 avoid no, the question. Five, five, I know we, we do, but yeah. I'll get you there, but you know, five million people, 7.8 billion people, 195 countries in the world. New Zealand can't just sit around here by ourselves. We actually do have to go out, do trade, but equally we have to stand up for liberal values, uh, a liberal democracy. So what so, is New Zealand's most important international well, relationship? relationship is that with Australia. Um, if we're really clear, we've got one and a half million New Zealanders and Australians moving across the Tasman. Our economy is very tied to the success of Australia and we've got strong historical ties. So geopolitical observers say our current two-pronged approach to our relationship with China is unsustainable and that in the near future we are likely to be forced into a position where we have to choose between our traditional allies, the US and Australia, and China. What would you do in that situation? Well, look, I, th I don't think that's a luxury that New Zealand can afford. You know, we don't have commercial free trade agreements. It may not be something we can avoid. It may, it may well not be, but what I'd say to you is we as a small country navigating in a big world have to be able to do trade with as many people as we can to, to earn our living, but equally have to be able to stand up with our friends uh, and, and defend liberal democracy. And things like freedom of speech mm. and democracy are really important. And so with respect to China, yes, it has been a very big driver of our economic growth. It's very easy for people to say we've got to just turn that off, mm. uh, but I can tell you, you don't want to, you know, we, you can't just turn off tens of billions of dollars of value and therefore jobs to New Zealanders. But you can also stand up and actually have honest conversations with China around issues, you know, around human rights and around human rights abuses. So, what do you think about the human rights abuses in Xinjiang province? Well, I think they have been, you know, we've declared it as a joint parliament that they are severe human rights abuses. And I think you have to be in relationship and you have to be prepared to go and engage on that and speak very strongly to that uh, with the Chinese around what we feel about that. How familiar are you with the Treaty of Waitangi? Um, I'm not a treaty expert. I certainly wouldn't be as, as, as culturally fluent and literate as you are. Um, but I really, you know, want, I've been trying to get into that space even through my New Zealand journey and, and, and other places. You understand the differences between the different articles? Yes, I do. Yeah, so Article 1, sovereignty. Article 2, authority over Tonga and treasures. And, and Article 3, really ensuring equality. The issue, of course, is the interpretation of those articles uh, and sort of how they, you know, the Treaty of Waitangi Treaty, as to how we all take different views on that. So what does Tino Rangatiratanga mean to you? Well, it, it doesn't mean co-governance to me. You know, it means actually partnership uh, and it means, um, you know, Māori having authority over their tonga and their treasure and their land. And so I think, you know, we are waiting for the Waitangi Tribunal around part one, part two and Ngāpui as to whether they ceded sovereignty or not um, as to how we ultimately are interpreting the treaty. And within New Zealand, and uh, again, I'm not a treaty scholar by any stretch. I respect people who are. You know, that's the, that's the tension that sits there. So you don't believe in co-governance? 
No, I, I don't think the treaty is talking about... I think the way it's being represented to New Zealanders is, is a separate system, you know, and I think we fundamentally need to be very proud of our bicultural, you know, founding and starting point uh, and, and, and acknowledge a special place for tangata whenua, but also we have to acknowledge we are a multicultural, modern, outward-looking country as well. And so, for me, you know, I want to see us work as one country, uh, equal, uh, but actually to be able to... Um, you know, to be able to deal with, so we've got a lot of Māori inequities, for example. We've got to be able to sort those problems. But, but there's a, I mean, Māori would say that the solution to those inequities is for Māori to be in charge of solutions and to be not only empowered but funded to reach those solutions. I mean, you only need to look at the vaccination rollout of the last yeah. couple of months, right? Absolutely. As soon as, as soon as it was yeah. evolved to those exactly, solutions. exactly. So. Why are you not more open-minded to that style of governance? I'm incredibly open-minded to that. You know, I think when you look at Māori um, for Māori solutions, that's, that's great. What we've been talking about, and I think in recent times, has been the notion of co-governance means 50-50, you know, separatism. And I don't want the country to be divisive. I want the country to be more united. Uh, and so, if you, you know, in the spirit of what we were talking about before around social investment, mm. you would discriminate on the basis of need. Of course, on the basis of need, you see high levels of Māori Pacifica, and, that, and there is an overlap in those things. But I would always come through the lens of need rather than ethnicity. Do you think the Māori Health Authority is racist? Um, I, think the, I think it's a separatist and a separate system. Is it racist? No, I'm not going to go there. I think what is is a separate system that actually will end up competing with the healthcare system, and I don't think that's a good thing. What will you do about diversity in your caucus? Well, I think you know the reality for us is that you know we had we if if you go through the history of the National Party, there's sort of two things you've got to get right when we're when we're doing things well. We represent a moderate liberal and a moderate conservative tradition. And the key word there is moderate, um, but also we are a national national party and we have connections with all communities. I'd say to you that we had quite good representation and diversity in our candidate list going into the election, but we got wiped out and we aren't as diverse as we need to be. And we want to be building back relationships to all communities because I think, you know, Māori are very interested in what the National Party believes, you know, in our values. I think same with the Pacifica communities. And so as we go into 2023, it's going to be really important that we've built good relationships, good engagement, and ultimately we can represent those communities in our caucus. Jacinda Ardern described climate change as the nuclear-free issue for this generation. How would you describe it? Well, I think that's right. I think it's a fundamentally... You think it's the nuclear-free issue? Call it, I wouldn't use the same words, but what I'd say to you, it is the preeminent issue of our generation, without doubt, and it's the number one issue around the world that we have to deal with. What I would put to you, though, is making declarations and actually not following it up and executing it is, is what I observe this government doing. So what would you do? Um, well, I think what we can do as National say, yes, there is, there is man-made-induced climate. We're not climate deniers. We're not climate minimalists. It is, it is what it is. But as, as a centre-right party with our politics and principles, I think we can be the people that moves it from you know, idea into, you know, through a plan and into results. What does that mean in the agriculture sector, which makes up almost half of New Zealand's emissions? Yeah, it makes up about 46% of our emissions. Um, you know, that's a, that's a challenging one for us to work our way through because we have the best, um, most carbon efficient, you know, farmers in the world. We do, but they still emit yeah. a lot, right? Yeah, they do. But actually we have a huge opportunity to actually, because we are the world leaders, I would like to see us actually leading for the world, you know, a group that actually works on agricultural emissions. I think we could do that incredibly well here from New Zealand um, because at the moment it's all very well to say you know it's a high proportion of emissions which it is there's a question around methane whether it should be you know calculated technically in the same way 
Um, but what we do know is there is no obvious pathway or technology today to get to the outcome we all want to get to in terms of reducing emissions. But we are the best and we should actually lead that development of that work there. So there's no technology that exists currently? The Climate Commission says inevitably herd sizes will have to be reduced in New Zealand if we are to meet the targets that we have committed to. Would you support reducing herd sizes in New Zealand? No, I wouldn't. Uh, I wouldn't. I think you know, we need to be fundamentally focused on... Uh, put Even if that's what it takes? Yep. No, absolutely. Because New Zealand, I can tell you, I tell you what will happen is we're the most efficient in the world. We end up cutting our herd size. That's an opportunity for another country who's, who's dirtier. Uh, and actually that doesn't help glo the global situation around climate change. So I know it's a difficult one because the easy one for us sitting here in New Zealand with the best producers in the world is to say, you know, just cut the herd size. That's not good for global climate change or the world. What I would say to you though is take an issue like transport where you have 20% of our emissions coming from transport. You can see a pathway through technology to get us to a place in the next you know, 10, 15, 20 years through electric vehicles, hydrogen, etc., uh, to be able to, to collapse that piece. Uh, but it requires charging networks, it requires good investment in EVs, all those sorts of things. Have you spoken with Jacinda Ardern this week? I haven't actually, no. I've spoken to many of the other political leaders, but I haven't had a chance to talk to Jacinda. Had any conversations? I guess we'll be talking next week. Yeah. Yes, have you, had, have you had any conversations with the Prime Minister in your time in government? I actually haven't. No, I haven't. Since you haven't I'm spoken honest. at all? No, no, we haven't. No, we haven't spoken. So, um, Is that weird? Um, I, I guess it could be. You know, we, we, we did used to talk in my former life, but um, we haven't spoken since I've become an MP. A couple of questions to finish up. What international political leader do you most admire? Um, I really most admired Barack Obama, you know, which sounds a weird thing to say. I'm not sure our politics, you know, might have not be 100% aligned, but I admired him, frankly, because he carried himself with humility and he had massive determination for his country and his cause. How often do you speak to John Key? Oh, I'd speak to him, you know, several times a week. Yeah. How many times this week? <laughs> um, a couple of times this week. I mean, uh, he, you know, he called to congratulate me and to say, you know, wish me all the best. And I promise this is the only religion question. Why did you stop going to church? Um, in part because at times I would be hit up for free Air New Zealand flights to, uh, to the UK uh, and it got a bit too much. But, um, really? Yeah, really? Yeah, 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 no, it's, it, you know, once, yeah. But um, no, the bottom line is my faith is really personal to me. Yeah. And, you know, it is, um, you know, I don't need to go to church to, 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 to have, to, to, with my faith, you know. Thank you very much for your time. Look forward to more of these conversations. Appreciate it, Jack. Yeah, thanks for your time, too. That is the new national leader, Christopher Luxon. Send us your thoughts. We're on Twitter at NZQ&A. You can email us, Q&A at tvnz.co.nz. Coming up, with Auckland's border restrictions to end in just 10 days, what's going to happen in remote parts of New Zealand? Hōki mai anō. Welcome back. This is our last show of 2021, and of all the issues we have covered this year, the Q&A team reckons one stands out. From our very first programme of the year, back on the 14th of February, we have gone on and on and on about Māori vaccinations. We know that Māori are overrepresented in negative health stats, so shouldn't Māori be prioritised before other groups in the population? I'm more worried about them not coming forward to get vaccinations when the vaccines are available. Well, that's a, that's a no-brainer. Uh, based on our health statistics, um, absolutely. 
and I would be very, very surprised if getting vaccinations out to hard to reach Māori communities wasn't an absolute priority. Dr Jansen says this, the next outbreak in New Zealand will be the Delta or Lambda variant. It's going to arrive and it's going to be really, really transmissible at a time when Māori and Pacifica are less vaccinated than everyone else. If me, quote me there, because that's a, an effing perfect storm. The um, elimination strategy is probably mm. the most pro-equity strategy from the perspective of Māori, Pacifica and the elderly and the ill that, that I can think of in health. If we get COVID before the end of the year and we have not been able to make sure that the groups that are more vulnerable to COVID and to adverse COVID outcomes have been vaccinated, then we're really in trouble. Associate Health Minister Peni Henare is with us from Parliament. We've invested in a number of campaigns uh, to support Māori vaccination and yet we still find ourselves lagging behind. Perhaps our messaging hasn't been on point, but our Māori people aren't coming forward to vaccinate. 78% of eligible people over the age of 12 have received at least one jab and just 56% of eligible Māori. There hasn't been a really strong Māori COVID response. There have been inequities all the way through. History will record that in the face of a deadly pandemic, you began relaxing public health restrictions from those toughest restrictions with a Māori vaccination rate 26 percentage points I behind totally that of the general population. Jack. Now, we should note, massive progress has been achieved over the last couple of months with Māori vaccination rates, but today they are still well behind those of the general population and in a few weeks on the current trajectory, Māori will make up 50% of all Delta infections ever recorded in Aotearoa. Organiser and activist Tina Nata has been on the front line of getting remote Māori communities vaccinated into Tai Rāwhiti. She is with us this morning. Tina Akwe, thank you so much for being with us on Q&A. What have you learnt from the vaccination rollout this year? Oh, morena Jack, morena koutou. <clears throat> I think probably one of the standout lessons um, was was mentioned quite well in that in that previous piece just now. It's the perfect storm that's created by inequity and so the inequity that has existed from the beginning of the vaccine rollout has created multiple complex issues for us to deal with. We have to deal with a different way of approaching misinformation. We've had to deal with a different way of accessing whānau who live in very remote areas um, and, and just can't afford because they're, they're in manual jobs. They can't get the time off to just talk to a GP to get good information um, or they can't afford the GP um, costs to be able to just have a conversation. There's just all of these different layers and levels of inequity within this system, not just within the vaccine rollout, but within the system that have been generations in the making that have created difficulty for the vaccine rollout. And I would say also that that means that the government would need to be dynamic when it comes to this next phase of dealing with the phase that, you know, for instance, Tāmaki is already in now, of dealing with those whānau who are unvaccinated but COVID positive, living in crowded households. Um, having a lot of household transmission, having complex needs, lack of access to test services. And so it is turning into a perfect storm mm -hmm. of complexity. And, you know, the, the vaccine rollout, I think the important thing to remember is that the vaccine rollout isn't over. 
we've now got booster shots, the rollout of our booster shots. We've got our, ch our child vaccinations. And we know that, um, for instance, tamariki Māori have higher rates of rheumatic fever. Tamariki Māori have higher rates of respiratory illness. And we've yet to see a plan from government around how tamariki Māori might be prioritised in the next vaccine rollout in a way that indicates that they've learned from this last year as well. So, you know, I just think that yeah, the, the dominant lesson is that inequity mm. really does breed a perfect storm of complexity and higher costs later on. Mm. And then the other thing would be that the government, our government is probably not as dynamic and adaptable as it needs to be in order to answer that challenge. What role does personal responsibility play when it comes to getting vaccinated? Well, I think personal responsibility, everybody's got personal responsibility, but that personal responsibility is facilitated in different ways through that system. So my personal responsibility as somebody who has been subjected to a system that has taken my children, that has put my aunts and uncles through sexual assault in the in the child apparent childcare system, that has turned me away when I've gone to go and ask for help before multiple times, or who has judged me or dispossessed me, my personal responsibility to my whānau would be to protect them from that system. And if you have not been subjected to that, then you might see your personal responsibility as being quite different. But I think that's the thing that we've been asking government and the New Zealand public to understand is that even people who are vaccine hesitant, they generally do have strong values and reasons for being vaccine hesitant when they've been subjected to a very harmful system. They're still trying to protect themselves from harm. It's a different form of harm. Now, that's not to justify being ju mm. uh, vaccine hesitant. What that says is that it needed a completely different set of conversations and it needed more time. And we were saying that from last year, is that the conversations we need to have with our whānau were more in-depth, they would have taken more time, and that's why we needed some more priority to be built around our Māori communities. What's going to happen over summer? I'm really worried about what's going to happen over summer because there is that lack of understanding, and it's not just a lack of understanding. When I say a lack of understanding, um, I don't just mean government, I mean... Aotearoa in general, people seem to think that 90%, there's this big, you know, fanfare around 90%, oh, you get to 90% and you're going to be saved. Now, let's look at that 10% group. Forgetting, this is actually putting aside that, you know, over a thousand of the current outbreak cases are, are tamariki, are children, many of them Māori children. And that's some 20% of the current outbreak being children. And so that's not even figured into the 90% number. And it's quite appalling to me that we keep talking about this golden number that forgets what that's going to mean for children. But look at that 10% of the current eligible population. What's the mortality rate going to be within that 10%? It's going to be very different for people who live a five-hour drive from a hospital than it will for people who live a 10-minute drive for hospital. Within that 10%, you're going to have a much higher mortality and complexity um, mm. rate for, for our rurally isolated whānau and Māori whānau is another intersection of that and dispossessed whānau living in poverty is another inter intersection of that. So I really worry about people because we're vaxxed that it's fine. Mm. No, that's that's not fine. You're also going to take into account our health services. So 
you know, we have extremely minimal health services in really isolated regions. And those extremely limited health services have been going, you know, hell for leather over the last few months, trying to get as many people vaccinated. They are tired, they are fatigued and they're exhausted and COVID hasn't even arrived yet for us. Yeah. And so I, re I really worry about people coming here, leaving their perfectly good health system where they are, coming here where there is very little to no health system in place mm -hmm. and expecting us to be able to look after them because they want a holiday. And that will come at the cost of our households that need that care, that desperately need that care as well. And they don't have the option to go somewhere else. They don't have the option to escape somewhere else for a holiday. This is our lives. We live here. And the health system is all we've got. So yeah. I really worry about, you know, the impacts of people thinking that it's okay because you're double vaxxed. You could still carry the virus here. It would still mean devastation for us. Mm. And 90% is not a safe zone for us that don't, for those of us that don't have good health systems in place. Well, Tina, good luck for the next couple of months. We will stay on this issue and look forward to speaking again soon. Thank you very much. That is Tina Nata. Thank you. After the break, flat out on a beach towel or flat out at work? We meet a contact tracer preparing for a hectic summer, keeping COVID under control. For COVID testers, vaccinators, border workers and plenty of others, this probably won't be a classic Kiwi summer. Several thousand people will still be working in the engine room of the COVID response, while the rest of us hit the beaches. Fina Owen spoke with a contact tracer who's expecting to be very busy. I'm Lee, I'm a um, contact tracer working for Regional Public Health. Um, I have a background in um, public health nursing and a qualified registered nurse. So um, we just need to go through some, um, some questions with you just to make sure your health is okay. It's quite a varied role and we get um, notified of new cases in the morning um, and sometimes later in the afternoon as well. Um, so we look into their, into their records, um, confirm that it is a positive case, and then we um, do the case interviews. There's often a lot of work with if there's exposure events, so people have been in contact locations during their infectious period. Um, and what date did you start experiencing the runny nose? So we really like a detective. It does really feel like a detective role. Um, so, you know, we can seem quite nosy, I think. We understand that it's a really... Um, tough time for a lot of people. Um, I'm just calling you in regards to your um, a COVID test that you had recently. Um, you are um, a confirmed um, case. We break the news um, as gently as we can um, and, and we often say to them when we ring up to do the interview, you are a, you are a positive case. Um, how, can we give you 10 minutes or half an hour to go and make yourself a cup of tea? come back and then we can um, commence the interview. So yeah, we, we appreciate that it's, it can be a shock to some people. If you're having any um, fever at the moment, so are you it feeling would, hot or cold? Really great if did. No? Okay, that's great. These are people's livelihoods. We're asking them to stay at home and isolate for an extended amount of time. So we need to, we need to have humility and empathy when we're talking to these people. It's, it's so useful, um, people scanning um, with the COVID Tracer app. 
um, you know, it makes our, our job so much easier. The team, the team um, is really aware that um, it is a really critical role we play um, in, in trying to contain COVID. Um, it's a real national response as well. No, COVID doesn't take a break over Christmas, so um, we will all be working. I've, I've got a four-year-old and a two-year-old, and I'd love to be home at, on Christmas Day with, with them, um, but this is also important work that needs doing. Uh, yeah, indeed. Koumotu, that is Q&A for this week and for this year. 2021 has had more than its share of challenges and stresses, but I've got to say, it has been an enormous privilege to bring you this programme every Sunday. I want to give a special shout out to my colleagues who have worked in really trying conditions to produce the interviews and stories we feature on Q&A. Alex, Fiona, Connor, Fenna, Siobhan, Suze and Phil, plus the studio teams, the camera operators and production staff, thank you. To New Zealand on air, irirangi te motu ka nui te mihi. And finally to you at home, thank you for your support throughout 2021. We have really appreciated it. Have a relaxing, safe summer. Kia homaru te noho, hei ākua nei e hoa We'll see you soon. Q&A is made with the support of New Zealand On Air.